evening style. And uh, thank you so much for being here tonight. And uh, we will uh, get going here in just a second. Let me give you a couple of announcements that you need to know about. Uh, pray for Brother Mike. They're out of town this weekend. This is his last uh, Sunday evening that they're out of town. Uh, so uh, he'll be back uh, on the 13th for the next evening on week number five. Uh, but you get me tonight. I'm sorry. All right. I apologize in advance. Um, but let me give you a couple of announcements. Right after, because of growth groups um, or because of Makaira this upcoming weekend, we'll have um, some time afterwards tonight. And we're trying to get some tables set up in the gym. So if you're able uh, to help us with that for a few minutes after church, uh, that'd be a big help. Uh, we're doing all of our meals inside with 295 registered, and we're doing all the food inside. Um, and we can do 210 in the gym, and then we're using the three back classrooms. Uh, we're going to put 30 men in each one of those rooms, which will give us seating for 300. Uh, so we're setting all that up tonight. Ladies are coming in starting tomorrow and be working all week this week. Uh, every single day, somebody will be in here doing something, prepping for Makaira. Oh, isn't it crazy how it takes so much time to get everything set up? And we tear it all down, and we're ready for church in like an hour and a half. On, on Saturday, so it's, it's ironic how it works that way, uh, but every day this week from 10 to 1, if you have any time and you'd like to come and help uh, do some things every single day, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, we have stuff assigned out that we're trying to get done, and then our guys, if you can help us on Saturday for an hour or so, we're trying to get everything done, and we'll assign you to an area, and once your area is done, ready for Sunday, you can go home. Uh, unless you just want to be an overachiever and you want to help another group or something, that's fine. Uh, but we're just trying to get everything ready so that no one has to be here until 5 o'clock on Saturday afternoon and then uh, do church on Sunday. Uh, invite somebody for Grief Sunday. Mentioned this morning uh, the book that Pastor Prater wrote, uh, when, How to Get Through What You'll Never Get Over. His testimony is incredible of what uh, the Lord has brought them through, the tragedy that their family experienced a few years ago. Um, and pastoring on top of that, pastored uh, his church for 20 years. And his son pastors, and, and nobody knows this yet, but uh, his son Tyler uh, will actually be preaching Makaira for us with Kurt Skelly next year in 2024. Uh, he's already agreed to come fly out from Kansas and preach for us. So uh, Brother Bill will be with us and uh, be with us all weekend. We're looking forward to that. And then we don't have growth groups next Sunday night because of the busy weekend. We won't have growth groups on Sunday, so we'll have the Sunday evening off to kind of rest and catch our breath after a busy weekend. Okay, so let's take our Bibles tonight. You should have received a handout uh, on the way in, and if you did not, just kind of throw your hand up and we'll get you one. Looks like we got everybody covered. Uh, lesson four tonight is on uh, bibliography, the doctrine of the Word of God. In Hebrews chapter four, in verse number 12, is kind of our starting point. And uh, Hebrews 4.12, the Bible says, For the word of God is quick, which means alive, and powerful, and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, joints of the marrow, and is a discerner or a probing agent of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So everything that takes place from the word of God is meant to expose areas of our life that we need to have uncovered uh, uncovered, and where we can draw closer to the Lord. If I were to ask each of you, what is the most purchased book in the United States every single year, most of us would probably guess the Bible. You know, uh, 20 million copies every single year just in the United States. Uh, of 20 million copies of the Bible are sold every single year in the United States. And the U.S. prints 100 million copies every single year. A lot of missions agencies ship them overseas, different parts of the world. Uh, but it's estimated that 92% of Americans own one copy of the Bible, at least one. 92% of Americans own at least one copy. We were staying uh, this past week in uh, Cherry Grove, uh, South Carolina at the beach and in a high-rise condo. And I opened one of the drawers in the condo unit, and there's a copy of the Gideons, you know, uh, the Bible presented by the Gideons. So uh, it's, it's all out there, but we all know that just because it's out there doesn't mean that people will actually read it. Uh, but 92%. The Bible has been translated in at least 3,500 different languages, 3,500, uh, which is 
astounding to me if you've ever been to the Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C., and if you haven't, I would encourage you to go. It is mind-blowing the amount of work and research that has been done uh, for that multi-level. Our teenagers just went a couple weeks ago and uh, had a great time and teens talking about how encouraging it was to them, but uh, 3,500 different languages that the Bible has been translated into But that sounds amazing until you realize that there are 7,400 different languages around the world. So that leaves a deficit of 3,900 more languages. People do not have the Bible in their original language. Now, about 1,100 of those don't need the Bible translated into their language because they may have access to a Bible in a different language that they may speak. 2,700 do not either have a complete Bible or do not have the Bible in their language, 2,700. And that represents over a billion people around the world uh, do not have either access to the complete Bible or maybe they have a book of the Bible or John and Romans or just a piece of the Bible, uh, but they don't have the complete Word of God. Uh, So there's a lot of work to do. And so when we talk about the authority of Scripture, uh, why do we present the importance of the Word of God? What is so significant about this one simple book to our lives? Okay, so we're going to break down tonight uh, bibliography, the study of the doctrine of the Bible itself. Why do we talk about the Bible? Why is it so important? Number one in your handout tonight is its authority. Its authority. When we talk about authority, all of us live by some measure or form of authority. Everything we do, whether it's uh, your authority at your workplace or maybe a code of conduct that you've uh, lived by all your life. I heard several years ago a a Christian musician say, we say what we think, but we live what we believe. We say what we think, but we live what we believe. And every one of us make decisions every single day because of some type of guiding force in our life, some kind of guiding principle that we live by. Uh, Those who believe something have that and hold that for some kind of a belief period or some kind of belief. You know, what is it we hold as our standard of practice is the phrase. Uh, Just as there are standards in the business world and government and education, a Christian needs that absolute standard, the Word of God in their life, governing them, guiding them. Uh, A lot of people will say, you know, I, I let, I'm like Jiminy Cricket from Pinocchio. I let my conscience, always let your conscience be your guide. You know, I let my, let my conscience guide me. But the Bible says in Titus chapter 1 and verse 15 that our conscience can be defiled. Uh, it says, uh, under the pure all things are pure, but under them that are defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure. But even their mind and conscience is defiled. We can get to a point where our conscience is skewed in the wrong direction. Where we're not making wise, godly decisions and our conscience leads us astray. Uh, Paul tells us in 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 2 that our conscience can be seared. Seared, where we get to the place, uh, if you've ever had a severe burn, and where you say, you know, uh, that part of my skin no longer has any feeling or uh, doesn't uh, feel pain uh, or contact like it used to because it's been seared, our conscience can get to that point. You think about people who have no remorse for wrongdoing. Uh, They don't feel any kind of remorse or guilt or shame because of sin. Uh, Think about 1 Corinthians chapter 8 where it says our conscience can be weak. It says, Howbeit there is not in every man that knowledge, for some with conscience of the idol unto this hour eat it as a thing offered unto an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. So our conscience doesn't necessarily have a barometer that's always constant. It doesn't always have a consistent guide when it comes to our decision making. Our conscience can be swayed. And you talk about the church, we talk about our conscience in uh, the secular world. Think about the church. We live by a set of code of conduct, even in our church. Uh, Whether we say it's biblical or not, uh, we all have a code of conduct when we come in here. We uh, come in on Sunday morning, we dress a certain way. Uh, We come in and we uh, carry a certain version of the Bible that we're familiar with or maybe we've held on to all of our lives. Uh, We have sacred cows, we talked about them this morning. You know, we have certain things that we do even in the church. But Paul dealt with that in Colossians. He warned the church 
about philosophies and traditions of men. Colossians 2 verse 8, Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy or in vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. Paul emphasizing, hey, it's not about what someone thinks. It's not about the way that someone has behaved in the past or the way that the previous church used to do it or this is how mom and pa used to do it and this is how our grandparents did it. It's about what Christ would lead us to do. It's about making sure that we are headed in the right direction other than Christ. Hey, the emphasis is all on something other than Jesus, following something other than him. And so consider all of the preferences that we have in the church today. We have a preference on dress and music and style and uh, conduct and version of the Bible and all these different things. Uh, Class style. Should we have small groups? Should we not have small groups? Should we meet one time a week? Should we meet three times a week? Should we meet uh, daily like they did in Acts chapter 2 if we're going to be biblical? You know, no matter what it is, all of these different preferences and so many traditions that we say, well, man, that's that's something that we should hold on to, but a doctrinal position is something you can ascribe a chapter and a verse to. Uh, in context, by the way. Hey, this is something that where we say, we know this is biblical because there is a doctrinal principle. There is a chapter and verse that we live by, and this is where it is in the Scripture. So uh, Paul said, be warned. Be warned. We're not going to talk about philosophies, traditions. We're talking about the things that honor Christ. Uh, Matthew 15, verse 3 through 6 Warns us against following man-made traditions. Says, but he answered and said to them, Why do you also transgress the commandment of God by your tradition? For God commanded, saying, Honor thy father and mother, and he that curseth father and mother, let him die the death. But ye say, Whosoever shall say to his father and mother, It is a gift by whatsoever thou mightest be profited by me, and honor not his father and mother, he shall be free. I'm talking about the religious leaders who said, Hey, what's the great commandment? Which, which one of these commandments should we honor? Which one of these should we prioritize? Jesus said, I didn't come to destroy the law, I came to fulfill it. And they're trying to nitpick Jesus' teaching, his authority. Where can we find fault with Jesus? And he said, thus have you made the commandment of God of none effect by your tradition. Elevating traditions more than the commands of God. They had muddied the waters. They had added on to God's command and so, well, let's, if we're going to honor our parents, let's honor them this way. And they had put sidebars on the com- commandments of God that were unrealistic. And so Jesus said, hey, let's just go back to honoring doing what God's word said. Let's go back to the teaching of the law. Instead of putting our own spin on it, let's simply do what it says. So be careful for the Christian, only the Bible is the authority, the unchanging authority. So where is our authority? It's authority, number one. But what is the Bible? The word Bible comes from the Greek word biblios, meaning a roll or a book. I think we all understand that uh, years ago when they got their first copies of the Word of God, it didn't look like what we have today. All right, They had scrolls. Remember in uh, the book of Acts, Acts chapter number 15, I believe, when Philip uh, met the Ethiopian eunuch, uh, on out in the desert, uh, he said, Understandest thou what thou readest? What was the eunuch reading? He was reading a scroll of Isaiah chapter 53. And he said, How can I except some man should guide me? And Philip comes up into the chariot and begins expounding the scripture, that scroll, with the Ethiopian eunuch. So the Bible didn't always look like this. All right? Uh, there's a pastor, we're talking about Kurt Skelly, the pastor uh, who pastored faith before uh, Dr. Forrester is blind. And uh, Dr. Forster, when he's asked to preach out and about, uh, selects, prays about his sermon, and he takes his Braille book of the Bible from what he's going to be preaching from, and he reads his text in Braille. Uh, he can't take the Bible because it would be too big, but he selects his portion, that segment of Scripture. But it's the Bible, Biblius, meaning roll or book. Uh, in the ancient world, it was a reed-like plant uh, called a papyrus. We know this from history lessons. Uh, that was stripped of bark, and then it was dried to produce a flat writing surface. Uh, the Bible is rightly called the Holy Book, the Holy Bible. Some of you may have that on the outside of cover, the Holy Bible. Uh, but the authority of the Bible is the basis or the platform 
on which doctrines are built. And that's the reason that Satan, ever since the beginning of time, since the Garden of Eden, has primary reason for attacking God is to attack God's Word. The primary target of Satan is the Word of God. He wants to destroy what God has said. And that's what Satan asked Eve in Genesis chapter 3. He said, hath God said? Did God really say that, Eve? What did God really say? And it caused her to question God's Word. Because if the authority of God's Word can be destroyed, what else do we stand on? We come back to the Scripture. Everything rises and falls on Scripture. Why do we have godly music? Because the Bible tells us to. Why do we get together and study the Scripture? Because the Bible tells us to. Why do we get together in smaller settings and with a smaller group of people and we study the Scripture? Because that's what they did in the book of Acts, chapter 2. All of these things that if the Bible, that principle is destroyed, what do we have left? It's the Bible. The Bible is our authority. It is everything. It's what we base our belief. And let's take it a little bit step further and, and make it personal. If the Bible is not true, what is our hope of eternal life? If the Bible is not true, are we going to heaven or hell? If the Bible is not true, is there even a heaven or hell? That's what Paul was saying in the book of 1 Corinthians. He said, hey, if Christ be not raised, we're of all men most miserable. It all comes back to what we believe about Christ through his word. So it comes back to the Bible. It's authority. But not only authority, number two, we see it's authorship. It's authorship. Uh, There are two measures here in the notes of the authorship of the Bible. Number one is human. And we understand that God is the author of the Bible, but God used men to write his word. Written by 40 different human writers over approximately 15 to 1600 years. From 1500 B.C. to about 100 A.D. Okay, uh, But then we see the divine, the divinity of the authorship. It was the and is the word of God. Matthew chapter 4, verse 4. Jesus, in the uh, temptation with Satan, said, He answered and said, It is written, speaking directly to Satan, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. The Bible is the very word of God. God. It's not just a book, it is the book. It is the, and let me just say, uh, it is the only book. It is the only book. I know certain cults may say, well, you know, this is another testament. If that was true, then it would be included in the book. God has given us everything he wants us to know about himself in this book called the Bible. And everything else is not the Bible. And is not God's word. The Bible is a supernatural book in the way that he gave it to mankind. 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 21. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man. But holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Three things in this verse. Three important details how we were given the Bible. Number one, it was not given by man. It came not by the will of man. Alright, what do I want to... Say about my wife and how she should treat me. So I'm going to write this down and I'm going to say that God told me. It wasn't by the will of man. How should my kids treat me as a dad, as a father? and How many gifts should they bring to me every single year for my birthday? I'm going to write all that down. And uh, all, all these different things. Not by the will of man. It wasn't their opinion. It didn't come by the will of man. Uh, number two, men of God wrote the Bible. It says in 2 Peter 1.21, But holy men of God spake as they were moved. These are men who wrote the Bible. They penned, they physically wrote down what God led them to write. And number three, God authored the Bible as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. It doesn't say as they were moved by their spouse or they were moved by their culture doesn't say as they were moved by their friends. They weren't moved or influenced by their peers, religious leaders of the day. They wrote as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Moved, meaning they were borne along, like wind filling the sail of a ship. It led it. It led, it helped steer. 
Over 2,000 times in the Old Testament alone, the Bible asserts that God spoke what is written in these pages. Over 2,000 times. That's not just accidental. That's providential. God desired to show us and teach us that it was His Word. They were writing down His Word. And God used human writers to pin His words. I like the illustration that Brother Mike gives us. It's talking about how we would write things down on paper. First, is the pen that actually does the writing. You think about that, you write something down, you're not writing. The pen is what's putting the ink on the paper. But it only writes as you move the instrument. So there is someone using that instrument to write on that page. The pen is merely the instrument that the user uses to write. And these men were not the authors of the Bible. They were merely the instruments that God used to pen the words. That's a great illustration. But not just that, the characteristic of the script when you write will depend on the kind of writing instrument you use. I, I love the fact that God allows us to see the humanity of the writers who helped, in, who were the instruments of the Bible. You think about the different times you were just to write your name, your, your signature, all right, uh, on a piece of paper. You could use a fine ballpoint pen. You could use a felt tip mark, marking pen, a Sharpie, or you could use a paintbrush. All right, The letter and the wording is the same, but the style of the instrument will give it a different look. And when we read the scripture, we see different looks of people in the Bible. You think about the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. They're all telling the same stories about what Jesus has done. But they're all sharing it with a different flavor, a different style. It looks different. Some of them give details that the others don't. Some of them are like Joe Friday on Dragnet, just the facts, just the facts. You know, Luke, just the facts, just the facts. You know, Mark is all about the miracles, the miracles, the miracles. Uh, Matthew is very detailed, very detailed. So all of these different things. John, John gives the, uh, the awesomeness. Hey man, this is what God's great plan was. You know, this is what Jesus did, but this is what God was trying to do. So we see all of these different styles, but they're all sharing the same story. But it looks different from, from writer to writer. The way in which God gives us the Bible is called inspiration. Inspiration. We see that uh, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, and we'll get there in a minute. But in, inspiration means God breathed. Breathed unto us. Breathed out by God. The word inspiration in the Greek is theonoustos, which theo is God, and noustos means breath or spirit. Okay, uh, So God breathed. It was given by inspiration. It's also given verbally. You think about uh, the word verbal is the word grandma, not grandma. Okay, uh, no, uh, It's grandma, which we get our English grammar, grandma, uh, which means letter. You think about uh, every dot and every tittle that's given to us. The Old Testament says every jot and every tittle, every dot of every I, every crossing of every T is intentional. It's inspired by God. But we also see the plenary, the plenary that's given to us, the full or the whole, all Scripture. It's all inspired. 2 Timothy chapter 3, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction and in righteousness. We know that all of it and all Scripture is written for me. And here's the truth. All Scripture is given for us, even if it was not written to us. I'm, I'm not of Jewish descent. So some portion of the scripture that was written directly to the Jews don't apply to me. But I can take some of the principles that are shared that were written to those people and apply them to my life. It wasn't written to me, but it was written for me. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. Profitable. And the Holy Spirit moved these human writers of the Bible in such a way that they recorded the very word of God but God allowed them to keep their own literary style, their own style as they wrote. You, know, you think about in the book of John, 
John is the only gospel writer who gives us the back and forth between Peter and John. You ever think about that? Think about when they ran to the tomb. When they ran to the tomb after Mary came back and said, He's risen. Which gospel tells us that John outran Peter? John. None of the other ones. The other ones say that they ran to the tomb. But John was very detailed in saying, I got there first. And God allowed him to record it. Which one shows us the back and forth where Peter gets rebuked by Jesus and literally told, mind your own business? Which one of the gospel writers records that for us? John. You know, John, which one says, calls John the disciple who Jesus loved? John. And God allows their individuality to come out in their writing. Think about all of the, uh, I don't necessarily know that Paul and I would get along. You know, I'm, I'm more meek, temper, meek temperate. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not a firebrand. Paul was a straight shooter. Just, I'm going to tell you exactly what I think. I don't care if you like it or not. This is what, you know, God, God told me to say it. I'm going to say it, like it or lot, uh, like it or lump it kind of thing. Uh, but that was Paul's personality. And when he, Paul wrote the epistles to the churches, that's how he wrote. Some guys were more soft-spoken. Paul was not that way. Uh, James was more, hey, let's, let's work together. Now, Isaiah, uh, come now, let us reason together. Hey, let's sit down and discuss this. Not Paul. Paul was like, hey, here, here's what God said. You need to do it. It doesn't matter if you like it, just do it. You know, I'd like to talk to you as grown-ups, but you're spiritual babies. 1 Corinthians 3. You know, so uh, he let them have their individuality. But because the Bible is the inspired word of God, we have to accept its authority for all we believe and do. Uh, here's a couple things just to be aware of that Brother Mike has in the notes. Beware of those who say the Bible becomes the word of God. When it speaks to you. The Bible doesn't become the word of God. The Bible is the word of God. Matthew 24. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. It has always been God's word. 1 Corinthians 2 verse 13. Which things also we speak not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth. So it's continual. It is God's inspired word. It is the word of God. Beware of men who say the Bible contains the word of God. I've heard preachers say this. The Bible contains the word of God. If you say that, you're implying that not all of it is the word of God. If I say that this, uh, I've got a cup in the back that has coffee in it, and I say that, that cup contains coffee, but that's not the only thing in that cup. Because I have drunk some of that cup, that cup also has empty space in it. It has air in it. So it's not completely coffee. It has other elements in it. And to say that the Bible contains the Word of God is to imply that it's not all the Word of God. There could be error in this book. The Bible doesn't become the Word of God. The Bible doesn't contain the Word of God. The Bible is the Word of God. Big difference. The Bible is the Word of God. Remember, 2 Timothy 3.16, how much of the Bible is inspired? All. A-double-L. Remember that old commercial? Uh, all. All. Uh, all. And all still means all. Every bit of it is inspired. The Bible is the Word of God. And because of that, it is truth from beginning to end. Psalm 119.160. Thy word is true from the beginning, and every one of thy righteous judgments endureth forever. It always has been and always will be, forever settled in heaven. It is the Word of God. So we see the authority, the authorship. Number three, we see its organization. Organization. How is the Bible contained? What, what, what's included? Uh, the Bible is a makeup of a collection of 66 different books divided into two major sections known as the Old and the New Testament. There are 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 books in the New Testament. They're not arranged chronologically, and they do sell, and I would encourage you if you don't have one, uh, they're not that expensive. You can find them on Amazon. Sometimes you can find them at Walmart. Um, if you go to Walmart, I won't ever find one, uh, but uh, not there. Uh, but you can buy a chronological Bible, and it'll, it'll literally, and 
if you're not prepared for it, it's a little unsettling at first when you're reading and you go from Genesis to Job in one jump. Uh, you know, when you just jump around different portions of Scripture. But you can buy a chronological Bible. 66 books, Old Testament and New Testament. And here's the breakdown. And if you were in our, just another a great resource, if you don't have this or weren't in our growth group, uh, on God's Big Picture, great book by Vaughn Roberts, uh, talking about the breakdown of the entire Word of God and how there are different segments of the Scripture. And uh, just a great, great resource to have. Uh, but here's the classification of the Old Testament books. There are the books of the law, which is Genesis to Deuteronomy, the first five books. Uh, the books of history, which is Joshua to Esther. We have the poetical books, that's Job to Song of Solomon. Major prophets, Isaiah to Daniel. Minor prophets, Hosea to Malachi. Okay. Uh, then the New Testament books, you have the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Historical, which is the history of the church age, uh, or the history of the church. And that's the book of Acts. You have the epistolary, the epistles, Romans to Jude, and then you have prophecy in the book of Revelation. So there's your breakdown. Most of the Old Testament origin uh, was originally written in Hebrew. The New Testament was written in Greek originally. Uh, some of the revelations of God's uh, creation of the universe in the Old Testament then focuses on the nation of Israel. Uh, the breakdown, creation, Genesis 1 and 2. The fall of man, Genesis 3. Judgment, flood over the earth, Genesis 6. Then you have the story of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, Israel, the fathers of the chosen nation. And then you have the history of Israel. Uh, and this may or may not be in your handout. Uh, but you have the exile in Egypt for 430 years, Exodus and the wanderings uh, of the children of Israel, 40 years, conquest of Canaan, which was seven years, uh, the judges, 350 years, uh, the United Kingdom under Saul, David, Solomon, that's 110 years, divided kingdom of Judah and Israel, 350 years, Babylon, 70 years, and the return and rebuilding the nation, 140 years. So uh, the Old Testament is hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years just of history. If you were to take Genesis 1 and go from there to Abraham, when Abraham steps on the scene in chapter 12, 1,500 years have passed in 12 chapters of the Bible. So you have all of this history just like whoosh goes, and then hundreds, you go 1,000 plus years, and then you have the rest of the Old Testament carrying out 3,000 years. So you've got a lot in a little bit of space, and then it spreads out over the rest of the Old Testament. So uh, the beginning of the New Testament, uh, that 400-year space, when you close out Malachi chapter 3, and you turn the page past, uh, most of us have two blank pages, uh, it says the New Testament, and then you open M Matthew chapter 1, there are 400 years of silence where there were no prophecies, no prophets recorded, and it's called the intertestamental period. Uh, some people would say, many commentators, the 400 silent years. We were talking about that right before uh, growth group tonight. Um, I love the quote from Louis Giglio, and I think we have it on the wall um, around Christmas time, one of our posters hanging around the building. It says, we go from Malachi to Matthew on one page of our scriptures, but that one piece of paper that separates the Old Testament from the New Testament represents 400 years of history, 400 years where there wasn't a prophet, 400 years where God's voice wasn't heard. And that silence was broken with the cry of a baby on Christmas night. I like that. No, I mean, think about during this time, God didn't speak through men. God didn't speak through revelation, through prophecies. It was silent. It was almost as if God was up to something behind the curtain. Like God was preparing something all during that time. And before Jesus even comes out on the scene, John the Baptist is born six months before Jesus. So that silence of the Messiah really starts coming out with John the Baptist. He's preaching, repent, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So he's the forerunner. And through John, Jesus, the apostles, the Holy Spirit, the church, God has spoken to reveal himself to us through all of that. So the Old Testament, that period of history, and then we see the New Testament which completes God's written revelation. Remember, when it got finished in the book of Revelation chapter 22, John signs off and says, If any man shall add in these things, God shall add in him the plagues that are written in this book. It's almost like God is saying, don't put anything else. I've given you everything that you need to know. At the end of Revelation, this is what you need. And the New Testament covers 
the life of Jesus, the life of the church, the foundation of the church, the multiplication of the church. You know, imagine showing up to church on a Sunday morning and 3,000 people walk the aisle and get saved. Not just that, but they follow the Lord in believer's baptism. It was an exciting day. You know, you go from a few hundred church members to several thousand. They had problems immediately. Good problems, but they still had problems they had to resolve. All of a sudden, they were exploding. Didn't know how to contain it all, yet God blessed. And the focus of the New Testament is on Christ and the church. Christ and what Jesus died for, dying for us, the church. So we see, number one, the authority of the Scripture, the authorship, the organization of the Scripture, and then number four, we see its names. Its names. Here's some of the names that you would see that talk about the Scripture. And, and as we get into the Psalms, uh, Psalm 119, uh, Psalm 119, every single verse, every single verse of Psalm 119 deals with the Scripture. Every single verse. Different words, but every single verse deals with something about the Scripture. Here's some of the ways that it's defined by its names. Letter A, it's called the Scripture. It means the writing. Usually refers to a particular passage. That's Galatians chapter 4, verse 30. Nevertheless, what saith the Scripture? Scripture. Talking about a passage of Scripture. Uh, Letter B, it's referred to as the Scriptures. A collection of writing or the Bible as a whole. Uh, Acts chapter 17 and verse number 11 said they search the scriptures daily. Daily. The scriptures. The whole lot of the scripture. And remember in the first church they didn't have Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. The epistles. They had the Old Testament. They were searching the Old Testament. Looking for signs pointing ahead. I love in uh, the book of I think Luke. Uh, Luke, uh, Emmaus, Emmaus, Luke, um, on the road to Emmaus, uh, when Jesus encountered the the disciples and they were distraught because Jesus had died and they hadn't heard of the resurrection and uh, Jesus rebukes them and then it says that they were upset because their Savior had died and what does Jesus do? Beginning at Moses and the prophets, he expounded unto them all things concerning himself. Painting a picture of Jesus in the Old Testament, looking ahead to the New. You know, people say, well, you know, you can't find Jesus in the Old Testament. Then why did Jesus take the Old Testament and the prophets and Moses and share truths about himself from the Old Testament? If he's not there, how did Jesus do that? It's a great question. I'll let you, you can ask it sometime. Uh, but it's referred to as Scripture, Scriptures. Holy Scriptures, Romans 1, 2, 2 Timothy 3, 15. Um, the Bible is different. It's set apart. Uh, Romans 1, 2, which he had promised before by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. It's different. It's distinct. Uh, it's the Word of God, Ephesians 6, 17. Uh, men, you will hear this verse later this week. Uh, Ephesians 6, 17. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, Machaira. Uh, the sword of the Spirit, that's the verse that we theme the conference. Uh, sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Word of God. The Machaira, the Sword of the Spirit. Uh, it's called, uh, it's referred to as Moses and the Prophets. Luke 24, here's the verse. Verse 27, beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in the scriptures the things concerning himself. There it is. The Bible is referred to as Moses and the Prophets. It's referred, letter F, as the Law and the Prophets. In uh, Acts 13, 15, after reading, of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue. And see, we see that over and over it's referred to. We see the Bible referred to. It's just referred to as different things. Uh, letter G, it's referred to as the oracles of God. That's, that sounds like a high church thing. The oracles of God. Uh, maybe it's just me. Uh, Romans 3, verse 2. Uh, because that unto them were committed the oracles of God. And then it's referred to as the Bible, which, which is pretty standard. Uh, the Old Testament, New Testament as a whole. So we see the authority, the authorship, the organization, the names, its themes. We see next, uh, number next. And I already mentioned God's Big Picture uh, by Vaughn Roberts. Great, great uh, resource to point out the themes of the Scripture. Uh, the Bible is God's revelation of Himself and His character, who He is. Uh, we see His divine judgment for sin and disobedience. We see His blessing for faith and obedience. 
Uh, we see his redemption of mankind through Jesus Christ and as the sacrifice for sin. And we see his eternal plan for the ages. We see how God desired to draw mankind back to himself. He desired a relationship with us, with mankind. He, has, he didn't des- design us and save us for worship. Even though that's a part of what we should do. We should worship. But he created us for fellowship. Fellowship. Somebody kill that fly. Uh, Fellowship. Uh, He has the angels to worship him. He created us for fellowship. So different. It's themes. Uh, So we have the authority, the authorship, the organization, the themes. Uh, Next thing we see, it's preservation. How could a book that's been written over thousands of years and been around for thousands of years, how can it still be here? How is it still relevant today? I mean, surely they didn't have the issues of today, back then, when it was written. I mean, that would take someone who knows it all to author a book like that. It would take someone with infinite wisdom and insight of what was going to happen. Someone who is sovereign, who knows all things, who knows what has happened and what will happen, to be able to write a book that is relatable for every generation. And not just ours, but the ones to come. It's the Bible. It's preservation. Uh, The word preservation is the providential keeping of the original text from loss or alteration. Psalms 12, 6 and 7. The words of the Lord are pure words. Verse number 7. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from uh, from this generation forever. Psalm 100, verse 5. For the Lord is good. His mercy is everlasting and His truth endureth to all generations. It's going to be here. Isaiah 40, verse 8. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Matthew 5, 18. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. And Matthew 24, 35. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. It's going to be here. It was here before we got here and it's going to be here after we're gone. It's God's preserved word. And then we see its contents, the canonicity, how uh, the books of the Bible were determined. What books? We we talked about this a couple weeks ago in discipleship, uh, about the Apocrypha, which is in this. We'll talk about just a minute. Uh, But which books go in the Bible? How, How is it determined what books, which exact books, went in the Bible? The canonicity is the process by which the books of the Bible were differentiated from other uninspired writings, from other teachings, other writings. The word canon comes from the Greek word meaning a rod, and it refers to the straight, a straight rod used in measuring. It was constant. It was consistent. And it came to mean the body of writings, the canon of Scripture, the whole, the totality of the Word of God. And over the century, three Simple principles have been used to determine and validate the writings that would come as a result of divine revelation. And here's the, here's the principles, and that, they're in your handout. Uh, here's the three principles that are used today to determine, should we include that in the Word of God? Should this be a part of our Bible? Principle number one, the writing had to have had a recognized prophet or apostle as its author. Okay? Now we say, well, Pastor, I, I know, or if you have knowledge about the Apocrypha, uh, some of them are written by, they say, disciples. All right? Some of them are written by prophets. All right? But all three principles have to apply. All right? So principle number one, it had to have a recognized prophet or apostle as its author. Number two, the writing could not disagree with or contradict previous Scripture. Now here's our question. Does the Bible validate itself? Yes or no? Yes. Does the Bible contradict itself? No. So that means that any writing that we would say, okay, this book that I wrote today should be included in the Bible. That means that everything that I write has to agree with Scripture that's already been written. Everything. I'm not an apostle. Nor do I know one. So I cannot meet the criteria for my book to be included in the Scripture. Number three, 
the principal had to have general consensus by the church as an inspired book. We have poured through this document and we know that this is valid. We know that this should be included. And there are reasons for rejecting the Apocrypha. If you were to pick up a Catholic Bible, you would find several books in that Bible. Typically, they're sandwiched between the end of Malachi and the beginning of Matthew, and they're called the Apocrypha. There are 13 different books that are called the Apocrypha. Uh, They're considered by the Roman Catholic Church to be uh, canonized as Scripture. That's what they believe. But here's the problem, and these are three things that are, are problems with the Apocrypha being included. No Jews accept the Apocrypha as part of the Hebrew Bible. Now there's a big question mark there. If the Old Testament is written to the Jews, more than half the Bible is written to the Jewish people, then shouldn't they have a say-so on if it's valid to be included in the Bible? And if they don't recognize it, as a part of the scripture. And it's the book that is written primarily to them. That should give a major red flag of whether or not this is valid scripture. But let's keep going. Although Christ quoted much of the Old Testament and substantiated different accounts from Old Testament writings, he never spoke from any of the texts of any of the book of the Apocrypha. So he spoke on Moses and the prophets, but he never pointed to any of the writings of any of the book of the Apocrypha. So another red flag. Should it be included in the Bible? Some say, yes, it's written from the same time period. But there was all kinds of literature being written at that same time period. That doesn't mean that it's a Bible. Number three, The Apocrypha books have been proven to have chronological and historical mistakes. Now here's the thing. 2 Timothy 3.16 All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. Titus 1.2 And God which cannot lie. He is incapable of error. Would He give us 13 books Just throw them in there, and some of them have mistakes. If we say they should be included, then the average person reading who finds a mistake doesn't just say, oh, I'm sure that's just an isolated incident. It causes them to question the whole. It causes them to doubt whether or not the entire Bible is true. That's why we say the Apocrypha is not a part of the Scripture. I've read some of the books. I've read some of the verses of different ones of the books of the Apocrypha. And I'm not going to dive deep enough to say, well, Pastor, where are the errors? I don't need to know. I just need to know the basics that these are not a part of the Bible. Period. Uh, A couple other reasons Uh, When various councils in church history met to consider the canon, they did not vote for the canonicity of a book, but rather recognized what God had already written. Uh, They said, hey, we're not going to go back and add to this book. We're going to take this at face value, that this is the completed word of God. We don't need to add to it. Some of that goes back into the book of Revelation. Hey, don't add to or take away from the words of this book. Because it was recognized, some of the reason to reject Because it was recognized by the church, which is the pillar and ground of the truth, the church recognized the authority of God on it. The church validated. Now, in spite of error, the church said this is to be included. Now, here's the problem. The church is validating and putting its stamp of approval on error. Should we go with what the church says? Or should we go with what God says? Should we go with what the church says? Hey, this is good, even though it has error and we know it, but we should still include it anyway? Or should we say, you know what? 
let's go with what we already have. Let's leave the error out so that we know we have a completed word from God. Every word of God is pure. The way that it was originally intended. Free from error. It's inerrant, the word. Inerrant. So here's a couple uh, final things as we close tonight. Why believe the Bible is the word of God? And I'm not sure, are these in your handout uh, tonight? I don't have one with me. Uh, why believe the Bible is the word of God? Uh, number one, the uniformity of the Bible. The uniformity. Uh, we know the Bible is a collection of 66 books. We talked about that. 1,600 years, 40 generations, 40 different authors written in different places, different times, different moods, different settings. Three continents, three languages, Hebrew, Greek, Aramaic. Subject matter includes hundreds of hundreds of controversial topics and they all agree in sync that just doesn't happen but we see the uniformity the scripture the unity but even though it's a collection of all those books they still have harmony and continuity like Geisler said the paradise lost of Genesis becomes the paradise regained of Revelation whereas the gate to the tree of life is closed in Genesis it's open forevermore in Revelation. That's awesome. You know, even what mankind destroyed, God redeems. God closes the door. Uh, compare the continuity of the Bible with other writings. If you took 10, just say 10 authors, not 40 like the Bible has, but take 10 authors and say, hey, let's write on one controversial topic, just one. Let's all of us Take our own separate, go to 10 separate rooms, 10 separate settings, and let's all write on one controversial topic. You know what you're going to get? 10 different opinions. You're not going to get any uniformity. You're going to get 10 different opinions. And that's with 10 authors. But in the scripture, we have 40, and they all line up perfectly. Line up perfectly. They're harmony. There's harmony there. The writers, all inspired by the same God. There's one author. There's 40 writers, but there's one author. And it provides evidence that the Bible is the Word of God. So we see, number one, the uniformity. Number two, we see the scientific foreknowledge of the Bible. You know, we know that in the Bible there are scientific truths. There are things dealt with. Uh, there were stated facts before the discovery by men. Mankind looking into the Bible. I, I can't remember if it was, um, what's the guy's name uh, that discovered... Um, was it sonar? Uh, was Morse not, or Morse code? I, no, sonar. The guy who discovered sonar. Uh, I'll have to do research on that one. Or somebody will tell me after service. Uh, you might say that was your grandfather. If it is, I apologize. Uh, but one of the, one of the, one of the uh, originators, uh, I believe it's sonar, saw the verse in the book of Job and talked about currents. And talked about the, the highways in the sea. And said, maybe there's something to that. And studied it out and developed research that we use today. And it came from the book of Job. All these different things. Uh, I, I just finished reading Job, my devotions this past week. The Leviathan. Did you know there was a fire-breathing dragon in the Bible? Long before Disney had Maleficent and the, the fire-breathing dragon in Sleeping Beauty. There is a fire-breathing dragon in the book of Job because God asked Job, hey, did you create that? Did you cause fire to come out of its mouth, smoke to ascend out of its nostrils? Look it up. It's like there are some crazy things in the Bible that are talked about, scientific things. Think about the roundness of the earth. Isaiah chapter 40 deals with that. The suspension of the earth in space. Job 26. Uh, the currents of the sea. Psalm 8 verse 8. Also in Job. Uh, the springs in the sea. Job 38 verse 16. All nations of one blood. Acts 17. So all, those are just a few of the examples where we've been shown scientifically that the Bible is accurate. Uh, number three. The fulfilled prophecies in the Bible. You know, think about... All the prophecies that are foretold and take place in the New Testament, how did they all do it? Because they all pointed to the Lord. They attributed it to God. 
God declared that all of the evidence of his existence, superiority over man and all heathen gods, Isaiah 41, 42, 46. Now think about the examples of the fall of Babylon that was prophesied 200 years before it even happened. The fall of Egypt in Isaiah. Uh, the fall of Nineveh in Zephaniah. Uh, the fall of Tyre in Ezekiel. All these things prophesied way in advance before they even happened. Yet God's word God gives us truth in advance, prophesies things himself. Number four, we see the impact of the Bible. The impact of the Bible. The Bible has had a huge impact. Every one of our national monuments in Washington, D.C. has some kind of scripture inscribed in it. The dome on the Washington Monument around the spire at the very top has scripture inscribed. The Lincoln Memorial, scripture inscribed on the walls. All of these landmarks with scripture. Why? Because our forefathers were not deists. They were Christians. They read the Bible. The first presidents, John Adams, first John Adams, John Adams read the Bible to his son, John Quincy Adams talked about growing up and being a man of the Scripture. Uh, all of these things, history is chock full of the Bible. The importance of Scripture has had a major impact on art, on music, on literature, our education system. You know, uh, even science today, regardless of what Bill Nye says. You know, we have a biblical background. In everything. Uh, it's on civilization. Number two, on individual lives. You think about the lives that God's Word has transformed. People who have read the Bible and speak on, man, that helped me. That, that encouraged me. It's motivated them to be missionaries and martyrs. Made them better spouses, parents, friends, neighbors, co-workers. Uh, people who would agree with the Word of David. What he said in Psalm 19, verse 7 through 11, The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. Commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, much than fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is thy servant warned. And in keeping of them, there is great reward. You think about all of the helps that we get because of one book. Because of one collection of writing that God gave us. The Word of God is quick and powerful. Sharper than any two-edged sword. Piercing even through the dividing asunder of soul and spirit. Joints and a marrow. And it's a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. This book is the absolute truth that we rest on. There is no greater source of authority that we have as believers than the Bible. And yet, it doesn't do us any good if we don't take time to get to know it. If your spouse wrote you a passionate love letter and gave it to you, and you threw it on the shelf and said, I'll get around to reading it one day. How would it make your spouse feel? Dejected. They must not really care. They must not really love me like they say they do. And yet, isn't that at times how we treat our Bible? The greatest love letter that's ever been written by God to us. By a loving God who says, hey, I just want you to know how I feel about you. And how often we just kind of throw it in the back seat and Honey, where's the Bible? Where's my Bible? I hadn't seen it since last Sunday. This is God's love letter to us. And we ought to treat it like it's precious. I've been on the mission field and handed out brand new Bibles to people who have never had one. And I've seen them grab them, kiss them, hug them. And it breaks your heart because you realize that's not how we treat ours. And they look at it as something so valuable. They've never 
They, they've grown up their whole lives and never had one. When they get it for the very first time, it's something to cherish and nurture. They would never throw it down on the ground or set it down or put a coffee cup on it or something. Man, that's special. It's precious. And that's the way it should be with us. We should look at God's Word that way because of the importance it has in our lives. Father, thank you so much for your Word. Thank you for the importance of Scripture to us. Lord, please bless. Help us to see your Word as precious. And Lord, help us to value the significance that it has in our lives. Lord, I ask that you please bless, keep us safe. Help us to apply some of the things that we've learned tonight in our day-to-day lives. Help us to share these truths with other people who may have questions. And Lord, I ask that you please apply your word to our hearts. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hope you have a great rest of the week. Guys, if you can stick around.